From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. And we have got a great show lined up for you today with a fantastic first guest, Charles van Onselen, a very well-known historian of South Africa, author and observer of contemporary politics. And he's just come out with a new book called the Three Wise Monkeys. So I'm very excited that he's going to be talking to us on the show today. Charles, thanks for joining us on the New Blue Review. Thank you, Benji. You're more than welcome, and welcome to your listeners. Thank you so much. Now, Charles, the book is about the relationship between South Africa and Mozambique. Your last book, The Night Trains, that was also about Mozambique, and particularly the, the labor relationship, uh, I'm sure a very in-depth book to have written. Why did you decide to go back to Mozambique again for another round of writing? Okay, well, first, just to be a little bit pedantic, it's not a book, it's a series of books, but they are in a box set, which is why you're right to refer to them as a single enterprise. Now, while doing the research for the night trains, um, I was struck by several other questions. And amongst the questions that I was interested in, was how much, why was there so much ostensibly illegal economic transactions and financial transactions between Mozambique and South Africa? Because underlying this is South Africa is a conservative, Calvinist, Anglophone, urban, industrial country, and Mozambique is Lucifer, Catholic, rural, and commercial. And I started thinking, well, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you've got Northern Ireland versus Ireland, this doesn't lead to a happy set of relationships. In Southern Africa, why does this relationship, despite its ostensible illegality, continue and thrive? So that was the background, and that's more of the things that I wanted to explore, so I went back to it. It is interesting because we, we have this very frustrating way of approaching the colonial era in South Africa where either you're like this thing was... At, absolutely horrendous and terrible and it was uh, and it destroyed all these lives but you can't discuss it outside of the kind of tragedy porn version of it or there's a discussion about oh well you know things were so great under colonialism and look what's happened now that the liberation movements have taken over and, and no one seems to be able to talk about the topic in an intelligent way and I felt like what you partly were trying to do here was complicate that and actually look at colonialism in a way that was a bit more regional to the South Africa, Southern Africans. Oh, Benji, that's a very smart reading because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say the South African horror story has always been self-standing or the relationship with Mozambique has been confined to labor and the horrors of the mining industry. And what I was trying to do is to say, try and think beyond orthodox colonial imperial boundaries and try and understand the regional dynamics in exactly the way that you've pointed out. So I think that's a very smart observation. And indeed, that informs the underlying template for the, for the entire three books. Now, let's go back to the, the example you used of, of the Irish example and, and, and the religion. Mm. The relationship between South Africa and 
and Mozambique. How much do you think religion really played a role? Well, I think it played an extraordinary role, and that's one of the things, you know, that I'm trying to highlight for historians and for laypersons. Um, let's take a very simple example. Calvinists and South Africa, to all intents and purposes, got an established church. It's the Dutch Reformed Church, are wholly set against gambling. Indeed, by 1965, there's legislation in this country banning all forms of gambling, including in your own, in, in your own home for money, uh, bar horse racing. Yet, the single biggest ostensibly illegal business in the whole of South Africa in the interwar years is the lottery. And the principal lottery, it's not the only one, is based in Lorenzo Marx. So here we have a thing which runs completely against A, the Dutch Reformed Church, and B, against its political adjunct, the National Party, and yet it continues to thrive. Well, why and how is that? Because it's so widespread and popular, and because if the South African government interferes with that as a revenue stream for the Mozambicans, you would jeopardize the African mine labor supply. So there's a strategic silence, and there's a working misunderstanding. And yet, you know, with, with uh, apologies to any of our Catholic listeners, you know, you don't, when you read the book, Catholic Mozambique comes out almost a bit more liberal than sort of Protestant South Africa. It's racial, uh, people are able to do certain things, mainly because there doesn't seem to be such a strong law enforcement. When you're talking about non-rigor, sort of Catholic society is not the first thing that's going to uh, jump to mind. It, was there something particular about Catholicism in Mozambique that allowed it to be a bit more open and relaxed than, than Calvinist South Africa? No, I think there's something about Catholicism per se, and it doesn't really matter in which theatre it plays out. Catholicism, by its very nature and its teachings, is more open and more, and, and more liberal and tolerant, especially in the social dimensions. Um, because it goes to forgiveness and understanding about the... Whereas Calvinism is about orthodox discipline and self-help, Catholicism has a more embracing ideology of humanity's imperfect, and we need to be tolerant of that. Calvinists say humanity's imperfect, and the onus is on you to lead an exemplary life, and only you can do it individually. So, so in Catholic Mozambique, as in Brazil elsewhere, you can drink and dance on Sunday. Sunday's a day of celebration. In Calvinist society, it's a day of excessive discipline and you have to go to church, preferably, preferably once early in the morning, and listen to the true word as presented by the minister. And that has a, a huge effect on, on, on the two societies because one of the things, a big theme in the book, is the development of the random marks. You mentioned the gambling aspect but also as a holiday destination, literally that more relaxed space that's not available to South Africans that's just across the border, so to speak. Actually, absolutely. It's as if Lorenzo Marx were a pressure release mechanism, that here, no drugs, rock and roll, sex, seeing movies on Sundays, drinking on a Sunday, going to a restaurant on a Sunday night. All these things were prohibited by the South Africans. So it's as if there are a group of people in yearning for some social freedom and greater expression. And they go to Lorenzo Marx and Mozambique for a holiday. And that is their forum for letting off steam and relaxation. So why is it that, although you cover this extensively in the book, the development 
of Lorenzo Marx. Certainly, I think people listening to the station may remember that as kids. You know, this is where you you did go on holiday, mm-hmm. and yet it never quite ended ended up beating out places like Durban and Obschlango or even Cape Town as the place that South Africans eventually went. Maybe give us a little bit of background about why it is that Mozambique never came became that sort of in the same way as maybe Mexico is to, to America or or the south of France is to chunks of Europe. Right. Why did it never quite get there? Well, there, there, there are two parts to the answer to your question. The first part, there was a moment of hope after the establishment of Union and into the mid-20s when the Mozambican administration with the backing of the Portuguese government believed that they really could turn that part of the southeastern coast into a sort of Riviera equivalent um, for white South Africans. But remember at the same time you're getting a huge and sustained onslaught in Calvinist terms and Christian terms about the menace and dangers so that drives up some of Afrikaans speakers. English speakers have got this big imperial hangover and aren't the greatest linguists in the world, so they're never fully comfortable with, with, with Portuguese. And they have a set of stereotypes, very vicious stereotypes, about, about Portuguese and Catholics. And gradually Durban gets into the ascendancy because it offers you a holiday in, in, with, in an English-speaking environment, which is slightly more relaxed than is Johannesburg. But then, you know, San Quentin prison is probably slightly more relaxed than Johannesburg in the 1920s. And one of the elements that you cover in the book about this relaxedness of Lorenzo Marx as it developed is, is really is the, the, the status of women and what they're able to do in Lorenzo Marx that they may not be able to do in South Africa. And I'd be interested in, in you addressing that also in terms of, particularly in the Jewish community, but in general, the, the use of, of white sex slaves that were coming through the subcontinent, because you covered that in, in, in The Fox and the Fly, some of your previous work. So if you could maybe, for people who don't know that part of, of, of the history, if you could talk about that and the role that Lorenzo Marx played, that would also be very interesting. Right. Again, I think the answer really comes in, in, in two parts. After the First World War, um, you start seeing the birth of the quote-unquote new woman. There are women after World War I who are looking for more independence, more openness, more control of their own lives, including their social lives and their sexuality. South Africa, as you can imagine, is the least hospitable grounds for that. And so um, some South African women go voluntarily to Lorenzo Marx to live a different lifestyle. Many of them have also been socially marginalized, so they're going there for reasons of problem, problems. They've got problem with an abusive spouse. They've been divorced or they've been widowed. And, they can't, and, and they're on the social margins of small Afrikaner-dominated high-felt towns. And Lorenzo Marx lends them an alternative venue where they can become dance hostesses, work in, the, in hotels, restaurants, and so on and so forth. The Jewish thing is more complicated. Um, Early Johannesburg has an extraordinary number of Americanized Jewish prostitutes. These were people recruited by criminal gangs, led by Jewish gangsters in New York. And when South Africa started to burgeon uh, and Johannesburg as a market, they brought in white slaves um, that had been recruited in Europe, trained and quote-unquote broken in in New York, and then sent to downtown Johannesburg. Now, after the war, 
the Mulner administration is trying to clear up the whole of the city of illicit liquor dealers and of and and of prostitutes. And it's at that it's at that moment that some of these Jewish prostitutes go to to Lorenzo Marx in the hope of getting back to Europe or getting back to America. Some of them are stranded there. Others again, just as with a high felt Christian woman, have been marginalized because they no longer have any farm, any family. They've, they've lost contact with their kin in here and they reside there as elderly sad cases and many die there. And as you know, there is still a portion of the Jewish cemetery in Lorenzo Marx, now Maputo, in which the names are overwhelmingly of females because that place was always short of females. Um, it was a, a port with more men than women in it, and they're overwhelmingly Litvak prostitutes. Mm. So it's a sad part of Jewish history which reflects international forces, globalization of a criminal trade with Jews as victims. And Jewish women, of course, as victims. It's sort of extraordinary for me that they had their own... Because once the the community started trying to combat this, they they would put people in the cheyrim and and try and exclude them. So you had... So they just went off and made their own synagogues and their own communities. You had Yom Kippur night with a pimp and prostitute synagogue. It's quite an amazing thing to think about. Right. It's amazing, and on the, uh, you, you know, on the one, uh, on, on the one, uh, one hand, I suppose it's depressing in that people have been marginalised and they're out of the mainstream community. But on the other hand, in terms of keeping ideal values and a notion of what the good life is and what the community is and what your religious responsibilities are, it's quite extraordinary and encouraging. Yes. Um, you know, and 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 there are parallels with other. <laughs> With, with other communities and other religions. You know, it's perfectly possible to be a member of the Mafia in Chicago and a good practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. So there are complex relationships between religion and crime. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. We're talking to Charles Van Onselen today. He is a historian of Southern Africa and uh, general history as well. And uh, we're talking about his new book, Three Wise Monkeys, which talks about South Africa, Mozambique, and its relationship. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM, talking to Charles Van Onselen today and his new book on the history of South Africa, Mozambique relations, Three Wise Monkeys. Now, Charles, one of the things which also struck me in the book and was so interesting is how we think about... We're listening to a radio today, uh, people listening in their cars or, or whatever, and we kind of think about radio as an old technology, maybe the last hundred years or so, but at the time that it came out, it was kind of like the Facebook of its day. You had a new entrepreneur who came up, and the government was very slow to actually understand what the role is of of radio in South Africa, and the guy that brought it to, to South Africa was almost as large as life as as an Elon Musk or a, or a Mark Zuckerberg, do you want to maybe talk about him for a little bit? Right, we, we, we're talking here about I.W. Schlesinger. Mm. Well, I think the first point that, 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 that I'd make for Jewish listeners is that there is a tendency again to see um, I.W. Schlesinger on his own as a standalone amazing figure like a Musk or a Zuckerberg. But actually, if you take Jewish history in general 
into, into perspective and you look at the outflow of extraordinary Jewish talent from um, Lithuania, Latvia and so on and how they go into America and establish themselves on the West Coast and are, are powerful in radio, television, drama, theatre. There's a thing there about Jewish culture and your capacity to market entertainment. And Schlesinger is just part of that. I mean, he's a New York boy and he grows, he grows, he grows up there. The deeper question still is about Russian persecution, pogroms and, and social and economic oppression of Jewry in Eastern Europe and why it is that Jews go into marginal things like running canteens and allowing gambling on their premises because these are on the margins of the society where the Russians don't want to come in. So there's a Jewish repertoire of providing entertainment, gambling, that goes back to Russian persecution of Jewry. It then goes to America and flourishes because it's in the cultural DNA. How do, how do I find new economic niches? And Schlesinger comes out of that. So Schlesinger's well attuned and knows what's happening with American Jewry and the entertainment industry. And it's not just radio. He's, 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 in, he's interested in casinos as well and, and, and in gambling and he's and interested newspapers. in cinemas and newspapers. So you can see in that sense, I.W. Schlesinger is not a standalone individual at, at all. Mm. He's really part of the way that jury around the world is responding to new freedoms and new possibilities in, in economic development. And the Southern Africans are extremely slow to understand or to use this and they, as you rightly point out they don't really know how to field it and when they do they take an oppressive model from the BBC from an arch Calvinist actually in the form of Sir John Reith and they impose this deadening template on the SABC so um, in radio terms Schlesinger is the first in with radio and then comes some Australian um, entrepreneur in the form of uh, Ruth Naylor, but again, Schlesinger can see that the model that is being used here is out of tune, out of keeping with the rest of the world. And sets up a very classic South African, I don't know if you call it a trope or a stereotype, of this type of SABC which is boring and unimaginative and government-driven, right? Not all that much different from today. And, and a long history of pirate radio stations, which then spring up again. Listeners would remember Lorenzo Marx's radio. And because it's a monopoly, because SABC is a monopoly, you, you can't get anything else on the station, Mozambique becomes this place where you can get something a bit more different and, and fresh. Right. And you've got the added advantage that, you know, radio waves are very irresponsible and subversive. They don't present passports at the border. They just cross, radio waves just cross the border. They don't care too much about borders, which is very different, very difficult for nationalists who like to think the nation is coterminous with the border to manage. So LM radio thrives. It thrives because, and let's remind us, white South Africans who are always very sniffy about people not paying their share of the national bill refuse by and large to pay radio licenses. So the SABC always struggles financially as it does as it does now, even more so because we have less law and order 
the less law and order you have, you know, the consequences are self-evident. So LM Radio thrives because it's got an enthusiastic young listenership and the big sponsors, American companies quite often, are buying advertising time on Lorenzo Marx and sending sending the message here. And quite deliberately, uh, because you write in the book that for example, on, 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 on Sundays, the music was deliberately uh, very low and very slow. So they would amp up the music on Ellen like, so that to try and pull listeners away. Exactly. And it wasn't a very difficult task because the SABC was semi-comatose most of the time. So what is also interesting is how aggressively they're doing it. They're doing it on a Sunday night. Quite often it's starting at around about church time um, or shortly thereafter. And LM Radio is broadcasting this hit parade, and all young South Africans are listening to it, including many of many of your slightly older listeners will remember very well what a daring thing this was to listen to Lorenzo Marx Radio on a Sunday night, let alone during the week. I mean, in some ways, it's very subversive, right? The fact that you're doing it, but on the other hand, later on, what the the Nats would start to worry about was. You know, what happens if Lorenzo Marx turns into Mozambique and radio or something? So did LM ever go that far? Was there ever, like, political content? Or was it just kind of subversive at the cultural level? No, I think, uh, again, I think that's very sharp observation. I think it's subversive at the cultural level. It's the Nats who fear it as becoming a, a, a political instrument with the rise of African nationalism in the 1960s and 70s. Right. So what they do is they start courting the Portuguese military and ultimately, they secretly buy out Lorenzo Marx and its managing company and, and neuter it. So, and that is the birth of Radio 5. Radio 5 is when um, the Frelimo closed down LM Radio and PJ Mayer, the Brunebund and other neo-Nazis actually um, ran the SABC and they then put 5FM on the, on, on the air. So 5FM is the bastard child of the SABC, and the SABC is the bastard child, I think, one of the most dangerous neo-Nazis that South Africa had. So why did Frelimo not take up the opportunity then? Like, why did they not turn it into something? Well, they're also locked into the South African economy. They have some of the, you know, they might have freed it politically, but in economic terms, Mozambique still bends the knee to South Africa even even today. Mm. So it's very complex. That's the one consideration. The other consideration is that the ANC was already broadcasting from Radio Freedom from Lusaka. So there's a whole period here in which there are a series of radio wars going on. And it's much more difficult for the South Africans to reach northern Rhodesia stroke Zambia than it is, than it, than it is to reach uh, Mozambique. And of course, the idea of an independent radio doesn't die. Right? From there you start with, I think Springbok was independent uh, eventually, 702 capital. I can't remember which was the, the how it goes, but essentially that model of the small independent Correct. kind of station Correct. lives on, but in a different way. Right. Springbok Radio is the exception. It's an SABC offshoot in '52. It's a conscious effort to try and compete. Oh, that's right. with it's the LA. competition, right? But you're right. absolutely right about Capital Radio, Bop Radio, um, and the attempts at Swazi uh, uh, Swazi Radio. Which again, who's 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 the entrepreneur beside beside behind Swazi Radio? It's Nady Kirsch. Right. So you, you know you can see these cultural geopolitical forces playing out. 
Were you drawing on the cultural skills and entrepreneurial abilities, um, in this case, of, of, of the Jewish community? And Capital Radio, I'm uncertain who the owner was. But I think these are much more imaginative and informing ways of looking at the birth and evolution of radio in South Africa, which I don't think has been particularly well documented. And, and understanding, even today, when we look at things like the SABC, some of the issues that we're having, we tend to think of it as like, okay, a state capture issue or whatever, but actually the, the SABC is kind of running to type in some respects, oh, <laughs> going back 100 it's years. It's absolutely running to type. And I think unless you're a vernacular speaker, you don't know to what extent it's running time. Because the persistence of, 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 of ethnic radio stations, which are language-specific, in Isizulu, in Tsevenda, um, or in Sasutu, you don't know what are the covert messages, by which I don't mean a conspiracy, but to what extent are ethnic tribal notions being built into that? Now, that was the apartheid policy, and that was the apartheid project, mm. to divide Africans up. Now, I'm not suggesting that the ANC and the SABC live with a, a covert conspiracy to try and encourage tribalism. I'm saying it's an unconscious byproduct. And when you've got, when you've got 11, 12 official languages, you've got no official languages, actually. Mm -hmm. And... That leads to the entrenchment of English, and unless your schooling system backs it up, um, you're actually slowing down the progress of the majority of the society getting to command English or their language of their choice. But there was also at one point this kind of Prague Spring in the SABC in the sort of late 90s, I guess, where people came in with new ideas and new options and ways of thinking about, I mean, again, just the Jewish angle, you know, they, you, you, you never had Jewish radio on the SABC right up until, you know, the 90s, and now it, it, you know, they had the Jewish voice or something, which ended up coming because people saying, actually, it's a public broadcaster, not a state broadcaster, and yet it sort of now feels more like it did maybe uh, in the, the kind of SABC that you were talking about in the book, a little bit more nationalist, a little bit more enthralled with the political party than the than the public. It's not financially stable, so it kind of pressing in a way that they didn't quite get to change the muscle memory of the thing. Absolutely. I think you're making two points. You're saying, go back and look at what the cultural program of the SABC was under Afrikaner nationalism. Look at the structure that is producing this and look at its finances. Now tell me the fantastic differences between the two. Now talk to us a little bit about the design of the book, right? So books, which is actually what I want to ask. I mean, it's mm. three books. Why did you not are not adverse to putting you know large tomes together mm. that uh, people need to read? So why did you divide it up? And also, I don't know if you had any hand in the design, but you know when I when I brought home the books to read, my my roommate thought I'd brought home a box of whiskey. Uh, so I was just wondering if there was any any particular idea around the, the editing and the, and the design around it. Yes, the idea was that you'd pull out, in the, out of the three books, you'd pull out the middle one, and if you were a lucky reader, you'd find a bottle of scotch <laughs> at, at the back of it. But they only... I didn't, get, I didn't get that in the advanced copy. Well, the, the, the publishers are very mean. I think they only did two box sets with the hidden bottle of scotch. Um, but... Uh, to, to answer your question is there are three fairly distinct sets of themes here and I could have put it all in one volume it would have been an unwieldy um, volume and several, several large books have come out over the last year or two and they just become physically very difficult to hold mm -hmm. and to read 
So that's one practical consideration. But the more important ones, these were thematically different. The first volume is concerned with how South Africa used its economic and financial might to underdevelop Mozambique and its economy. And it's a very conscious project, I can tell you. South Africa has imperialistic designs on Mozambique right up to the Second World War and just beyond it. Yeah, and, and nearly snatches Lorenzo Marx at some point Absolutely. As, as a kind of port city. Right, and, and that is its aspiration. And one day when Mozambique breaks up, which it will, between northern and southern Mozambique, the South Africans will again try and incorporate southern Mozambique. But I'm speaking 20 years down the track. But coming to a cinema near you, but not soon. The second volume here is really concerned with these issues of Mozambique and Lorenzo Marx being as a place of cultural liberation for hard-pressed Calvinists. And so, you know, it looks at, at the radio uh, um, and, and, and explores that. And the last volume is about the lottery, which is such a comprehensive thing. It, you know, um, if you want to age a Calvinist, tell them that there's gambling. It causes premature Alzheimer's of the political brain and common sense. But it, it, it also, I mean, in the, in the course of talking about the lottery, you cover early Johannesburg in, in a way that's about the fun kind of elements in some respects. You talk about uh, the, the horse races and the, the athletics and the traveling circuses. The, what was it like to try and find entertainment on a dusty right. mining town early on in the 1900s? It's right. almost Western-esque in its, in its description. Oh, no, I think, I think, you know, I think you're a very keen reader because that's exactly it. You have to look at this as a burgeoning mining towning and, and, and a center where people are exposed to very dangerous, arduous work, are making above average wages if you're white. And of course, this is all at the cost of Africans who are working at sub-economic um, and sub-subsistence wages. And there's a need to spend the money over, 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 over the weekends or at, or at night. So here's a burgeoning market of workers with a lot, a lot of money. And because women are irresponsible, they haven't come to Johannesburg in large numbers early on in order to work in brothels and cafes and restaurants. They're very independent-minded in that woman, way, which is why you need sex slaves, actually. And you can't just rely on normal sexual relations and activities over there. So the whole town's got that mining frontier, Western-like component to it. You're absolutely right. To, to, to point to that. And an incredible part of that is gambling. Now, if you look at mining, and especially in the 1890s, it itself is a gamble. How much money am I going to invest this property? Will I strike the reef? How rich will the returns be? And will I make money? And w as industry gets more established, and they drive out small-scale diggers and stuff, so your chances of, quote-unquote, getting lucky financially are diminished. And as they diminish your propensity to say, oh, well, I'll buy a lottery ticket and I'll hope to get, li I'll, I'll hope to get rich without work very quickly. Well, of course, it's a fool's dream, but luckily the world is oversupplied with fools, <laughs> then and now. One last point about the future of Mozambique. I mean, on the one hand, you're talking about the breaking up. We've seen uh, this kind of Islamist thing that's happening in the north but at the same time in the south you're seeing the ports of Mozambique privatizing starting to outcompete South Africa ports 
is it all necessarily a gloom and doom thing for, for, for our neighbour up north? In the northern part. Well, I'm saying as a, our northern neighbour in Mozambique as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, think it's very co- I think it's very complicated because if you look at what Total and others have invested in gas and petroleum offshore in northern Mozambique, um, th- this is absolutely staggering and the western powers are not going to allow that to be easily overrun. Um, but politically, the question is, does the Mozambique elite have enough wit and purpose to do some wealth redistribution and spread the benefits of gas and petroleum down through the whole of, of, of Mozambique. This is not the historical record in Africa, and I doubt that it's the historical record that will come in, in, in Mozambique. And as these discrepancies wider, widen, like with Sudan and South Sudan, you start getting regional differences. And just in a geographical term, southern Mozambique is much well better slotted into into the southern African economy. So you may have a kind of Nigeria-style Biafra war, something like that. Exactly, exactly. Those are those are those are potential possibilities unless you get great elite wisdom and law enforcement capacity. Now, um, law enforcement capacity, you only have to ask the Russians and 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 Prigozhin about what law enforcement possibilities are in Africa to understand how many ugly and different scenarios can develop. So your book Three Wise Monkeys, it's available good bookshops and uh, online I'm sure. Both good bookshops in South Africa have them (laughs) and some more imaginative small booksellers. Okay, it's published published by Jonathan Ball. Uh, I'm I'm not ever supposed to ask this of authors but uh, what are you working on next? I'm working, I'm working on how South Africa became a police state between 1960 and 1994. Okay, very, very interesting. Charles von Onslen, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review and Chai FM. It's been a real honour and a very engaging conversation. Thank you very much and thank you for such an acute reading of, of the books. I'm Benji Shulman. We'll be back just after this.